Welcome back to the Flex Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. On the podcast, we talk about all things to increase strength, performance, muscle, and do it with better body composition in a flexible approach. Today on the podcast, we've got Mike Kirkowski from The Strength Connection, and we're talking all about kettlebells. What should you do with kettlebells? Why they are useful? Uh, especially since the pandemic, I found that clients who had even just a single kettlebell could do a lot more stuff than just body weight alone. I started training years ago when I moved to my own place with just kettlebells was all I had for quite a while. So we talk about what are some movements you should do? What are some cues you should think about? And why it's good just in general to be strong. And this podcast is brought to you by the Real Coaches Summit 2023. Go to www.realcoachessummit2023.com and you can come see myself in Vegas along with a lot of other people such as Alex Viata, Dr. Jade, Allie Gilbert, Dr. John Mike, Andrew Coates, Sam Miller, Stan Efferdine, and many other people. I'll be doing a talk there on a metabolic flexibility, which is entitled Fat for Fuel to Get Leaner and Carbs for Performance, Master Metabolism with Metabolic Flexibility. It is going to be in Vegas March 6th and 7th. I believe there are still tickets available, but go to the website. They'll have all the details there. Now, the nice part is that is a Monday and Tuesday, so I know that might be a little bit hard for some people to get off, but if you can, if you want to party in Vegas, you can come in early, or if you want to just hang out where it's a little bit more mellow, you can stay after. Now, the nice part is the hotel isn't crazy expensive either, so go to realcoachessummit2023.com to check it out. No disclosures other than I am doing a talk there and just wanted to promote the word about a great, I don't make any money, there's no affiliate link there or anything like that. So if you are coming to the conference, by all means, please come up and say hi. I would love to meet you and chat, answer any questions you have, and just in general hang out. And I like dark beer or dark coffee, depends on what time of the day it is. So check that out, hope to see you there. And enjoy this conversation about kettlebells and how to use them with Michael Kurkowski. I always slaughter his last name. Sorry. From the Strength Connection. Check it out. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. We have another Mike on the podcast, which is a great name. So mm -hmm. thank you for being here. <laughs> two, two mics on the mic, right? That's the That's old right. joke. <laughs> Yeah. And today we're talking about strength and kettlebell stuff. I and mean, obviously you do a lot of both of those. Yep. How did you get into kettlebells? I'm always curious because I think we probably have talked a little bit about this in the past. I think some of our past probably overlap in mm -hmm. relation to the kettlebell journey. Sure. Yeah. It was that interesting. I got into FMS work first when I was got hmm. my first job as a personal trainer. Long story short, I was was looking to be a pro baseball player. That was the first goal that I had and then got into training from there. And then a good friend of mine got into the personal training world and introduced me to functional movement. And when I was 14, I had a slipped epithesis. So I had my femur slip out of the growth plate. 
And, oh, yeah. What ha- what I didn't realize was how asymmetrical all of my movements were when I was in my early 20s training. Because when you're young, when you're 20 years old, you don't feel pain. You don't feel sure. those asymmetries at all. You can just go through anything. And he put me through a movement assessment, saw all these weaknesses that I had, some asymmetries, got body back in a balance type work and started knowing kettlebells as a tool. But then Brett Jones came to the facility that I worked at in Clifton Park, New York. And I believe it was the first ever level two workshop. It was still a very new thing going on. So it was my team. For FMS, you're saying? For FMS, yeah. And at the time he was with the RKC, he was a master RKC and another young guy just who was a kind of newly minted level one RKC was there as well. And I was just eavesdropping on their conversation about kettlebell stuff. And it was an early morning before day two. And I asked Brett, Hey, can you look at my swing? Just thinking I was going to show him how awesome my swing was. Mm-hmm. He proceeded to rip my technique apart in seven minutes with a 35 pound <laughs> kettlebell. And from there I got hooked on it and got into Pavel's work and did the RKC in 2010 in the Dayton's Bluff Community Center yeah. there in Minnesota. And been there. Yeah. And since then, I that was the modality of the physical training side that just was always at the top of my mind. I always liked the aspect of mastering a handful of movements rather than trying to expand my exercise library in my mind. Got the connection of that with the functional movement, working with athletes was big, then got more deep into the strength side. And yeah, that was the early introduction of it. I was, I felt fortunate. Pavel was teaching workshops back then. Mm -hmm. We learned from him himself at that spot. There was amazing instructors. And after that first one, it just, it hooked me into the modality and just never turned back. Very cool. Yeah. I think I might've even ran into you because I was doing, I think I was an assistant a couple of years around that timeframe there. And yeah, I did my first RKC there with Pavel, and he used to teach in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, which is where I live. I guess the I don't know if it's true or not, but the rumor was he used to teach in an abandoned bank vault for a leg. So to, <laughs> that way, if people hear screaming, they can't hear anything. Yeah, oh, I don't know wasn't that not, kind but... of the old weird story of him and John Duquesne met up when he was teaching at a YM, like a dive Community YMCA center, or supposedly. something like that? Yeah, like doing yeah. some like doing like a Russian stretching workout and then they're like yeah something's going on here and then the russian kettlebell challenge book came out and yeah just i think the the concept of trying to master something and get better at it was always something that i was into i was i was probably like a year in as a personal trainer at that time and just kind of learning the ropes when you're young when you're a new coach like you're just trying to absorb everything you're like a sponge And having a background in baseball, which baseball, it's like those little tweaks and techniques like are always the things that can really change a lot. So I was always, I always liked going like that inch wide, mile deep philosophy and the way that they were teaching it. I was like, oh, this is something I want to get into a lot more, which was interesting because I came back and I was, I worked at a place for many years that really didn't want to hear much about it. Like they just thought it was a tool. It was a fad and I was always that kind of outlier who was doing all the weird kettlebell movements on the side. And so, oh, yeah, that's just Mike. Just let him do his thing over there. Meanwhile, I was training people that were getting ridiculously strong and getting to their goals by doing this all the time. I was like, yeah, there's something here. But yeah, that with a lot of resistance at that time. So it was interesting looking back. Yeah, because I think especially younger listeners, we got a wide variety of people that are older, such as us, although we're not mm-hmm. really old. I mean, a lot of younger people and 
now kettlebells are just a thing. Like most equipment manufacturers make some type of kettlebell, but I think people forget like back in the day, I want to say for years, Dragon Door was the only place making kettlebell. Yeah. You could get maybe some weird GS bells, but they were not easy to get by any stretch of the imagination. And I remember seeing kettlebells originally through Charles Staley, who had Pavel on podcast or something like that, a video mm-hmm. or something. And so I remember ordering my first set of kettlebells. I was going to order the RKC ones, but I was like, ah, they're expensive. I don't know about this kettlebell thing. So I ordered from some off-brand, I don't even know what the name was, but you got a set in the mail. And so you got a, a 16, a 24, and a 32. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is great. At the time, I don't know anything about kettlebells. And so they, the manufacturer threw all three kettlebells, not wrapped together in a big box. So this poor UPS guy almost broke his back, <laughs> like trying to get it to the door. And you open the box and they're all like halfed up already and stuff and the I realized then trying to do snatches. So I had a video. That's what it was. of Tim Larkin showing kettlebell snatches. So I would watch the video and I'm like, okay, I go out of my yard and try it. And I literally just beat the crap out of my forearm yeah, for yeah. I don't know how long. I'm like, how do people do these things? And eventually I figured it out. And then I realized that the structure of how the handle is and how it's actually designed makes a big difference too. Yeah. The ones I had were this weird shaped handle. The handle was not ground at all. You could see like a big chunks of where they either CNC'd it or just cut it out of the cast or whatever mm-hmm. they did. The handle was not smooth. So my hand was like ripped up instantly. And so I actually stopped doing kettlebell stuff for a while because I'm like, this is stupid. Why do yeah. people do this? <laughs> this is so dumb. And then it wasn't until a couple of years later, I got back into it and tried a buddy's kettlebells and he showed mm-hmm. me how to do it. And I was like, oh, this is like way different than what I was doing. Yep. And I went to my buddy, Brad Nelson, who was like one of the first certified RKC people. Oh yeah, I know Brad. Yeah, a good buddy of mine still to this day. And I remember afterwards going, oh, these are useful. Oh, you can do stuff with them. Oh, this yeah. is cool. And my kettlebells are shit. I need new ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. We had the old, uh, like the perform better ones that had such the glossy finish oh, on, yeah. the, on the handle. So they were yep. so slippery, no matter slippery. how much, no matter how much chalk yeah, you had stick to, to chalk. Yeah. Like they still had it. So I didn't do much more than like snatch. I didn't do any snatches or anything like that for a long time. Just learned how to swing properly, how to do Turkish getups at the time or getups, however you want to call it from there. But yeah, like when I started to see what they were doing with it with a snatch test and then seeing a guy like Pavel who's like that aesthetically just looks like that Bond kind of villain type look like you just had that kind of intimidating look I was like yeah this seems like something that's interesting and then sure enough I remember that day like when Brett really tweaked my swing technique and I'm like oh my gosh there's a lot more to this than just moving it was really uh it was really an eye-opening thing oh wow I thought I knew a lot of stuff and I don't know anything like maybe I need to learn more about this. And uh, yeah, just the tool itself is people have asked me a lot. What is it about? I'm like, it's just the versatility of it. It's like you can train anywhere at a time. I love going outside and training, like getting out into the fresh air. Like there's a lake by my house that I'm always posting videos and stuff like that on just because it's has just that nature soundtrack. And you can go out with a light bell and just play around with movements. There's like a deeper connection to it than just 
getting strong or getting lean. There's a mental piece to it. I feel like there's like a spiritual piece to it. So yeah, it's, it's a great tool. I recommend it to everybody. And I think I've recommended kettlebells to people for a long time, especially if usually the question is, I don't, especially with COVID, right? It's, yeah, I can do body weight stuff, but after that, what do I do? And my recommendation generally is get like a TRX or a pull-up bar or go to a park and just buy a couple kettlebells. I think if you're a dude, I don't know what your thoughts would be. Get a 16 and a 24. I think that's probably a pretty good starting yeah. point. And then if you get past that, get a 32, the old school, one of each size. And then if you want in between size or doubles or whatever, depends on what you want to do. When I travel sometimes down to South Padre, especially during COVID, the gym wasn't open down there. And due to limited room, because I packed a car full of kiteboarding gear, I didn't <laughs> have a lot of room to, to bring much gear. So I ended mm -hmm. up just bringing two 16 kg kettlebells. And surprisingly, mm -hmm. if you know what you're doing... That can be pretty useful. You can yeah. do double snatches, double swings. You can put them in one hand. So you can do rows, which is obviously a 32 then, which is a little bit more realistic for a one-arm row. You can do a lot of stuff with them. You can go outside. I would just walk down to the beach, take them down there. You can do hand-to-hand mm -hmm. -hand juggling type stuff. So I think they're pretty versatile for something that doesn't have a huge footprint that's semi-affordable mm -hmm. for someone who's just looking to start or if they just want body weight with a little bit of resistant options too. Yeah, that I've really over the last just few months, really, I've realized how powerful it is to use submaximal loads with things like ballistics. Like you don't need to go into, I started doing snatch work with the 20 and the 24, which for my strength level is I can pretty much do anything I want with those bells, but just that sheer technique work on it. Like there's so much benefit, like you don't need to keep progressively overloading the weights, especially for ballistic type work. And we had something interesting, Mike, because when, after I left my first job, I joined a buddy and we had a small kettlebell studio here in Saratoga Springs and thousand square feet, all basically kettlebells. We did some barbell based work and body weight, but when COVID happened, nobody knew how long we were going to be shut down. Yeah. We thought it was going to be maybe a short time. So our team, we actually gave all of our kettlebells out to our members at that oh, time. Nice. So they had at least one kettlebell at home so they can still do the classes, do the workouts they were doing. We built an old online business, but it was because it challenged us as coaches to be like, okay, like how do we put a program together if people just have one kettlebell? What if it's a little bit too light? What if it's a little bit too heavy for stuff? And it really challenged us as coaches to look at programming a lot differently. And I think that's the cool thing about kettlebells is if you have one weight, figure out how to use that weight to the best possible ability and you build strength with it. I think Brett had a famous line, like put me on a desert Island with a 16 kilogram bell and I'll walk out of it stronger from there. And I had a good, I had a cool conversation with Dan John about that, about just the exploring movement with a lighter bell. Like if you just had one bell, how many different variations, how many different combinations of movements can you put together in different things? Like, I think that's cool because it's part of the thing that I work a lot with my clients on is not just following a structure, but exploring your own intuition, your own movement as well, that play aspect of strength. And I don't think we, we don't do that as much as coaches with a lot of clients is just let them explore and play kind of have that day where you're just moving for the sake of moving. And I think a kettlebell is a great tool to add into that day and just challenge yourself in the creative side, not just the physical side. Yeah. I used to do that when I teach, when I used to teach more 
fitness professionals directly. I used to work for Globe University and they had a two-year and then a four-year program for personal trainers. And so one of the exercises I would have them do would be, okay, you're stuck in an elevator and you have to train someone, go. And the students would get so mad at me because I realized they had a gym there. So we go to the gym, we show them how to do exercises. And a lot of the students would just complain of, oh, this cable machine is not very good. We don't have this piece of equipment. And I'm like, you don't really need a whole lot. You've got free weights. You've got more than enough stuff in this gym to train whatever you want. And so then I started making it more difficult. I said, okay, you've got a pull-up bar and a kettlebell and body weight. What would you do? And then I'm like, okay, you only have a kettlebell and body weight. And then it's like, okay, you only have body weight. What would you do? Because initially I gave them just body weight and they all lost their mind and had... I don't know, push-ups. That was like all they could come up with. (laughs) Because you realize like they grew up with always having access to a gym. Like the perspective of a trainer is you're always working in a gym. This is years ago, even before COVID. But I'm like, if you're just starting out or if you're going somewhere or let's say your client goes on vacation, like they may not have access to all of that stuff. And I said, plus, it's just a good experiment to try to think outside of the box too. So I've done that with some days I'll get bored and I'm like, I just got one kettlebell is all I have. What would I do? Or I've got a 16 and a 24. What would I end up doing? And you can figure out some interesting stuff and newsflash. You don't always have to press the same weight on each hand. Exactly. If you've ever tried putting a 16 in one hand and a 24 in the other hand and doing like just a seesaw press, it's more different than you think it is. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it goes into those things like working on negatives, working on ISO holds, like all those mm-hmm. things like add in, like I, we used to do this. Yeah. Grab a couple of light bells, like a couple of 16s. Okay. Before you press, hold that for 10 seconds. All right. Now press hold over for 10 seconds. Now go back, hold. It's like all these things start to, to change the intensity of what you're doing based on the load. And it is, it's so many people, we have oftentimes this all or nothing attitude and clients, I think, look at this a lot too. If you, if they can't do exactly the workout that's on paper, it's, oh, I can't do anything then it's no, you can do a lot of different things. Like you can explore, you can play this out. So have that framework, but play inside of that framework as much as possible. And I think it's, yeah, like we, I used to have an array of kettlebells from four kilograms all the way up to almost, yeah, 92. I think like we had like a 92 kilogram kettlebell Ooh. at my old studio, which I think us and me and Kevin D from Philadelphia, I think we're the only ones I know that had those heavy bells. But then once you downsize, I'm like, okay, you don't have as many options anymore. What can you do to still get stronger? And it's like, that's the, I think that's such the piece that I'm into as a coach now of just like, the creative side of it. How can I make everything, regardless of what hap- what's happening in life, still get stronger, still get a good workout program, regardless of what's going on? Yeah. And for program writing, my biggest tip is just write down what are your constraints first, because everybody has constraints, whether that's I can only train so many hours per day or every other day, or I can't get to the gym. So here's what I have for equipment or whatever it is. Write all those things down first and then do your program. So like when I work with programs, like the first thing I look at is, okay, how often can they train? What's their time frame? And what do they have for equipment? From there, you just figure out what you need to do. And sometimes you could be like, hey, if you get a pull-up bar, you could do some other stuff, which would be useful, but here's what we're going to do in the meantime. Mm. Or I made the mistake early on years ago of just writing down what I thought was the ideal or the optimal program, realizing that nobody could do that. No one even understood it. It was way more complicated than it needed to be. And clients would just look at it and just their eyes would glaze over and they would do 
nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, like I know as a been doing this for a long time still, if there's so much things on like the docket that I have to do, like I'm looking at the whole elephant in there and I start to lose motivation of doing everything. If I know I only need to do a couple of movements, but do them a bunch. Okay. Like I'm ready to roll. I'm ready mm-hmm. to do that. I learned that too over time. Like where there seems like in kettlebell training, like a very sequential teach somebody how to deadlift first and then swing. And then you do these movements. And I think as kettlebell coaches, we sometimes think that everybody needs to do so much of the foundational things first before you can teach them how to do a clean and jerk, how to do a snatch and stuff like that. Now with people, I try and teach them those movements as quick as possible. It's the teaching somebody how to snatch. And if they can do it properly with a kettlebell, like that requires a lot of different things at one time, there's coordination, there's athletic movement, there's strength, there's stability. So it's, yeah, like these things that we used to think were like, like you need to be like at an advanced level or an elite level of movement. It's no, you can teach anybody how to do these movements if you just do it the right way. And for a snatch, like, what is, do you say the benefits to people and what is your preferred teaching method for it? In my case, I ended up doing it not really what the RKC recommends, but I found that if they could do a swing already and they could do just a stationary press overhead, I would have them do a few swings, do a press, press it overhead, and then drop it all the way down, tell them to use their hips to get it back up. Yeah. I found that was like the fastest way because they would start at the top and I'm like, oh, yeah, just get the kettlebell back overhead again. I'm like, Oh, and then trying to figure out the wrist and the hand movement a little bit. But I found mm-hmm. that was the fastest, but I don't know what sort of your preferred way of doing it is and what would be the benefits of a snatch if people are not familiar with it. Yeah. Like the first, if I'm going to teach a snatch, like if they can hinge properly, like still know you can do a deadlift and you can do a swing. So, you know, to get that float position of the bell, but then I like to teach it top down. I think that's the best way. If you cheat a bell up overhead, so you get that ending position at the top and then you can go through your tension points. All right. Legs are tight, like arms locked. Okay. That's your starting and ending position. Cause if you can teach somebody how to drop the kettlebell from a snatch position, their muscle memory, their natural, I think neurology is going to retrace their steps a lot easier than trying to start it from the ground up. So when I'm first teaching that movement, everybody has that kind of bang in the forearm type story probably when they first get it. So if you can teach them how to fluently get it, I found when you get a good kettlebell snatch, right? It's riding a bike. Oh, that's how it's supposed to feel. Okay. We're going to mimic that as much as possible. So you teach that in, but as far as training it, working technique at the same time, I think the half snatch and the reverse half snatch are even better than just doing regular snatching. I've talked quite a bit with Tim Almond on this, and he's done more with the hard style snatch than probably anybody as far as studying it and researching it. So actually snatching the bell up, dropping it down into the shoulder, and then dropping it like a clean and snatching it back up. I found of getting more of that, it's more of that that vertical position where it's like the difference of force production with a swing, you're projecting it forward where a snatch, you're going more vertical. The direction that you're doing is going up. So that's the different, there used to be that old saying of snatch is just a swing that finishes overhead. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, no, it's not. It's actually more of, if you drop down into a snatch, it's going to actually be more of a vert, like a 45 degree angle rather than just more of a hinge position. So I found by teaching the the half snatch, so you drop down to the shoulder and then drop from there, you need to develop more force 
in snatching it back up because you don't have the momentum of dropping it from the top. It seems like technique gets a lot more dialed in a lot faster by working the half snatch and then the reverse half snatch. So the reverse half snatch is really just a clean and press, and then you're doing a snatch drop. So that kind of screws with your mind quite a bit, I think, because if you drop down like from a snatch position and then you have to go right to a clean, you're what the heck's going on? It actually helps dial Hmm. in your clean technique a little bit more too. So if you work both of those, then it seems like your snatch technique just falls into that kind of Goldilocks position a lot easier. I think the snatch is just like anything with kettlebells. Everybody's architecture in their body is a little bit different. So finding the groove that feels best for that individual person is going to be different. If you're more of hip dominant versus kind of quad dominant, if your architecture of your body is a little bit different, it's going to look slightly different. But if you get those feelings down, then I think that's going to find that sweet spot for you. Very cool. And what are your thoughts on the snatch in terms of there's, I don't even know if this is a thing anymore, but competing schools of thought were the old school kind of really early way was just create like a big arc, right? So I'm going to take the kettlebell like a swing, but I'm just going to keep going all the way up. So if you're watching the video, I'm creating mm-hmm. more like an arc versus my goal is to get the kettlebell to go up more vertical. Yeah. And so when it's going up more vertical, I have to reposition my arm almost underneath. And when I'm coming down, I'm not just letting it just fall yeah. out in an arc in front. I'm actually dropping it down. So I'm almost like corkscrewing my arm mm-hmm. a little bit and then coming back up. Yeah. If you see, if you see my technique, if you drop it down, I have that corkscrew based technique mm-hmm. because I think, especially for hard style technique, GS people can speak to this probably much differently as far as the technique, but the closer you can keep it to your body, I think the better. Now, again, it's not like a dead snatch position where it's gone, but I think the thing with kettlebells is you always want to remember is the only thing the kettlebell wants to do is go down. So the farther out the arc is, then the more you have to use and compensate by possibly your back, by your shoulder, something's going to pull out the farther away from the bell that you get from the body. And just like we talked about, like the body's going to retrace its steps. So if your drop is far out, you're probably going to have it come back in the same direction. So that's why teaching the kind of the closer position like that almost, if you see Tim Allman's technique, he almost pulls so close where the bell's already on his wrist before it crosses his chin. And then it's Mm. almost like in one motion just flows back up. It's very different. It's hard to teach, I think, in many ways. But if you're, if the intention is keeping it close to the body on it, then I think it's going to Number one, it's going to save your back. So it's going to be safer from there. But again, if you're looking at the arc, like if I have a client that I'm working with and we're working on snatch technique and they're shooting me videos over and it seems like their snatch technique is going out, then I go back to the first two exercises that we talked about doing the half snatch and then the the reverse half snatch. Because I think the half snatch, you have to keep that bell close to your body. Like you can't shoot it out away from you. It's just not going to you're probably not going to produce that same force. Again, if you're playing with a light bell, then you can probably get away from it. That's why like with strength work, it's so interesting because you have to find the right bell that challenges you enough mm-hmm. with the technique where it's not so heavy from there. Like for me, like using 
like a 28k for like technique work seems like it's that like perfect and like the 32 i can get away with it for a few minutes in there but then i've got to push a little bit harder to really snatch that up with good technique afterwards so yeah i think the closer you can keep that bell to your body and and produce that force evenly with anterior and posterior then i think that's going to be the best for you yeah and you definitely see that with swings too right the biggest mistake i would see with people teaching was Unfortunately, it was usually with female clients, they would give them like, oh, here's a four pound kettlebell. And yeah. then they're just like, <laughs> exactly. It is no feedback and you can use your arms to move it all over. You exactly. know, so I found what like, I used to do with females all the time is I'd take sometimes a 16, 20, or sometimes even a 24, depending upon their background and what strength levels they were at, et cetera. And I would just teach them how to do swings. So I would air a little bit heavier, lower reps instead of going too light. And they would always ask at the end, they're like, oh, well, how heavy is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a 16. I'm like, oh, great. I remember this this one lady, this is like her fourth set. She's like, oh, this is only a 16. I said, yeah, it's a 16 kilogram. She's like, kilogram? How many pounds is that? I'm like, oh, it's 35 pounds. She's like, I can't do that. I'm like, <laughs> you already did three sets of it. It's the same kettlebell. I didn't switch them out or change them or anything. She's like, no, I can't do 35 pounds. I'm like, you did four sets of 10 already. I like know, just, yeah. Yeah, but it was just so funny. She was so adamant that she couldn't do it, even though she had already done it. <laughs> yeah, I know. The swing, the teaching the swing is always interesting with that. And that's why I think like the low swing is such a good exercise that- uh, And what is that? Low swing is you're not like a standard Russian kettlebell swing. You're getting it up to your chest where the low swing is, you don't worry about that. Like maybe the bell might be just coming up to the navel uh, sure. or so where all you're doing is you're just focusing on the drop back. And just, mm -hmm. so it helps like that almost slight disassociation of the upper body to the lower, because you want to really, the hips are the engine, like the core is what's working it. So it's just getting to snap the hips just so you feel that little bit of float go. A little bit more so that's why like the towel swing i think is a great mm -hmm. exercise people to work of just putting the towel underneath the handle and then just practicing just getting that hip snap in there and then once they get that down you start to see it float okay let the bell go a little higher let the bell go a little higher let the bell go a little higher and then all of a sudden they're just naturally just swinging from there but then once they get that, then I think you don't need to teach them that anymore. I think that's the thing, like we kettlebell, it's just like anything. It's like you, there's a feeling that you get as soon as they feel it and you can see it too. be like, okay, mm -hmm. that's the flow. All right. You feel that? Yes. Okay. Every time you swing a bell, get that feeling. Okay. Work it. And then you work it again. But yeah, like those small little kettlebells where if you can just hold it up there for like yeah. days and days, it's like, you don't need to swing that. <laughs> you don't need to swing that bell. It's just it's not going to get there, but it's funny. I used to, I had a, I had an old client. She was a track athlete. She was a referral of mine and she was 13 years old and she was just strong as an ox. And she was easily kettlebell deadlifting or 80 kilogram bell. She was doing it for three to five reps, nice. nothing, but people are like, Oh my God, how heavy is that? It's all my shit should be doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Kettlebell deadlift is one of the, probably the safest things you can possibly do for your body. It's right underneath your body. It's not putting a lot of excess pressure on your back and it's, yeah, you can get some weight in your hands. This is, this is something that everybody should test. Any tips for people doing a snatch where it's coming back? Like I was early on and it's just hitting the back of their forearm. Any tips on that? Yeah, it's, I think again, starting from the top position and working on the drop. I think that's going to help the most from there. I have a drill that 
I worked where you, you snatch the bell up, but you only pause at the chin. So it's the goal is you want to get that bell on the wrist, like before, like you get like to the level of your head. If you do that and you just do that a few times, then you go right back up to, up to the snatch from there. I don't know, like when I do any corrective type stuff with clients is as soon as they get it like once or maybe like twice, okay, do it again, then go right back into the movement and the drill. Okay. And then just work it from there. So oftentimes I think corrective exercise and like changing things and working on technique is something that I think you can also go so far down the rabbit hole with of just doing that. You need to fix all these different things. It's now, as soon as you like if we're working on the technique, oh, it feels like it's banging on the wrist. As soon as we get that down, okay, feel that. All right, go right back to the snatch. Okay, did that do it? All right, get right back into your technique. Go right back into your training again and work it. And then go back to that again. If it feels like it's off, okay, go back to that drill and see if it works again. Because I think if you find that one that works for your particular client or athlete, whoever you're working with, and then they know that, okay, that fixes it. All right. If you, if that ever feels like it's off again, go back to that drill, do it again. And more often than not, then clients are correcting themselves. And I think if you do that, then, you know, there's a lot less work as a coach that you have to do of working on these things over and over. And then we're not enabling people of thinking like, oh, they have to come to us. If anything feels off, like they have to come back to us and we have to fix it. Yeah, no, I like that. One of their tips I use, my buddy Adam Glass used to teach up here for mm -hmm. quite a while. And so he came over when I opened the gym in my garage and I had a client over and we were teaching him how to do a kettlebell snatch. And you could just hear that horrible noise of your skin moving on the kettlebell because <laughs> he was bringing it up and you could see him clamping down at the top. But he was using, he was a pretty strong dude and had a pretty heavy kettlebell. So the momentum is raking the bell through his hand, which is partially closed. Because mm. you hear that horrible noise of like his skin being moved across the bell, which is this kind of this oh yeah horrible <laughs> screechy noise. And both Adam and I are looking at each other. We're like, ah, stop doing that. And he's like, what? Okay, here's your cue. I don't want to hear your kettlebell snatch. And the first time I heard Adam say that, I'm like, oh, that's the dumbest cue I've ever heard in my life. And then I realized like it took him like five reps and he figured it out. I was like, oh, <laughs> external cue instead of an internal cue. Like, it's a weird thing of like, you're. it's almost like you're giving their body permission of what the outcome is. And then you're letting their brain sort through what is the best mechanism. So that sent me down a whole path of internal versus external cues and a bunch of other stuff. But it was interesting how a lot of times external cues just telling them what you want to do but being more specific okay yeah. i want you to imagine you're going to press the bell overhead but press towards the ceiling or do this or do that like you're giving them a cue that's different but it sounds similar but you're allowing their own physiology and neurology to figure out what is the best path to do that so i thought mm. that was pretty interesting yeah, you cueing such an inch. It's such an interesting topic of going into. I've talked with Nick Winkleman before. Yeah, on my he did podcast. his whole thesis on external cueing. Yeah, and his whole thing of like he used the analogy for us talking about squats, like with that like, you can do the the literal one, which is this is what's going on. And then it's like the visual, and then the last one he said is imagine that there's a snake right underneath your butt, and you mm -hmm. don't want it to bite you, so beat the bite. And it's yeah. like that one just clicks. He's like clicks right away. That's the one that works best for your clients. And 
I think that's something, I don't know if you did this when you were just getting started, but I used to over cue the crap out of everybody. Oh, I, I worked with. Poor people I worked with. I, oh. <laughs> I just vomited internal cues on them for way too long. And yeah, it was yeah. good. Oh my God. <laughs> I used to do that all the time. And then it's uh, the more I found something. One of the things that helped me a lot with snatching, particularly with technique is just changing the angle of my hand. It's like all of a sudden just going from like over the top just to a slight angle to the side. Oh, sure. That just naturally just flew everything in there. Like we talked about that corkscrew yep. position at the bottom. And I actually just did this with a client I've been working with recently. It was working on snatching and something wasn't feeling right. And I was just looking at the bottom of their position. Their hand was straight down. I said, okay, just try this. Just turn it slightly to the side. Okay. Every time the bottom position at the bottom of your hinge, your hand should feel like that. Okay, see how that works. And naturally, it just for some reason, it just put them in their own architecture of pulling the shoulder back so they're not compensating up with their mm -hmm. trap. They got that low pull position and then just popped in there. I was like, okay. And she's like, oh, is that it? I was like, yeah, that's it. Just do yeah. that. And it's sometimes it's as we want to, we love talking about this stuff so much as coaches that we want to word vomit everything out to clients when I've learned a lot of that from being a, a mentee to Brett Jones for so long is economy of words, as little words as you need to say to clients so they can do what they need to do. That is ultimately best. Sometimes we like try and justify our value of knowing, like speaking out how much we actually know about it. It's no, it's like just with cues and stuff like that. One cue retest. If it works good, move on, keep going to the next thing. Yeah. I wish someone had told me that earlier on, because I realized the less talking I did, the better clients moved. And then I realized, oh, my talking was screwing them up. I wasn't making them better. I was actually making them worse for a while. Yeah. And eventually they got enough reps and they figured it out. And so eventually over the long scale, they got better. It was a weird, I realized I fell into the habit of feeling like I needed to say something even after every rep in order to feel like my position there was justified. And so sometimes now I'll just watch someone. I'm like, all right, go. I won't say anything during their whole set or sometimes even after they're done. Another tip I got from my buddy, Sean Mishka, who does a lot of very high level movement coaching, works with a lot of NFL players for years. Awesome dude. He's after they're done, ask them what they felt, but he's mm -hmm. like, give them at least 10 seconds to process first and then ask them because then mm -hmm. I played around with this. So I would ask someone immediately after a set, how did that feel? Oh, good. But if you give them time to think about it, they don't give you the canned response that you want to hear. Mm. So, okay, just take 10 seconds, do a couple of breaths. Okay, what did you feel during that exercise? What do you think went on? And then they're like, ah, oh, this and that. And they're like, okay. Then I play the game of, mm. did what they feel match what I saw? And sometimes I'll even video them. And I'm like, okay, tell me what do you think went well on this and what could you improve? And then I force them to watch the video themselves and see, oh, can you correct yourself off of video but you give yourself that time to think about it before you watch the video. Because most people yes. will be like, I'll just watch the video. It's like, okay, but now you're relying on the video all the time, not what you're feeling going on. So mm. that was like super useful too. And I still do that with myself sometimes. Because you've all had like lifts or you're doing a squat or a deadlift. And especially for me on squatting, I'm like, man, that was slow as hell. I don't know. I think my hips are mm -hmm. completely off. You watch the video and you're like, oh, 
that looks okay. And it wasn't nearly as slow <laughs> as I thought. Oh, interesting. You're like, oh, so my perception's off. Oh, shit. Oh, I've done that so many times too, especially going into like heavy poles. And I was like, yeah. oh man, that one was like, that must have been. Then I go back to the video that I did and oh, there was no loss of speed. Everything worked well. I was like, oh, okay. I've got more in the tank. I was like, yeah, the perception is, I love what you just said there about that 10 seconds. Just let them sit in the movement for a sec. Take a couple of deep breaths because- yeah, like I know that too. If somebody asked me that, if they're coaching me, I want to correct it, right? Yeah. I'm going to say it right away. Oh yeah, that felt different. It's, did it really? That's it. When I started doing group classes and teaching groups with these techniques, that was when things changed a lot because you realize once you go from one-on-one -on -one working with somebody and then all of a sudden now you have seven or eight people that you're working with at once, like you need to get very economical with your cues and with your oh, words. Yeah. But also I think the other side too is when we look at technique and I think kettlebell coaches, we fall into this a lot. I think a lot of other coaches probably do too, but I've seen it a lot on this side is you think that good technique means it looks perfect. And it's no, as long as it's up to standard and it's safe, then let the person move. Oftentimes they just need to get strong. And I've seen mm -hmm. a lot of people, especially if at the beginning of their journey, when asked them, what have you done before? And they're like, oh, I don't think I'm doing it right. And it's like, they think that they have this narrative in their mind that they think technique means it needs to be perfect at every second. Otherwise it's wrong when it's like, no, there's a gradient. There's a spectrum of what looks good versus what's not. I have a couple of friends that I follow there. Their aesthetic movements just look beautiful. I'm like, if mine mm -hmm. looks as good as that, it looks great. But then I see other people who are strong as can be and their aesthetics are a little bit different. I equated it to like Yogi Berra, like Yogi Berra had the ugliest swing in baseball, yet he was an MVP. He still had good mm -hmm. results from it, from there. So it doesn't need to look perfect and beautiful in order for somebody to to progress with it, get it to standard, make sure that it's safe. But after that, let the person get stronger, let them work within that movement. It's going to, it's going to flow with their body the way that it's supposed to, it might not look the same as yours. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. Yeah. And again, that goes back to what is their goal? What are they trying to achieve? If you're going to do a Russian kettle GS sport, then yeah, at some point at the highest level, you have to almost contort your body to make sure the bell is moving as efficiently as possible because yeah. your goal is to do hundreds of reps for many minutes against other people who are doing the same thing. But if you're doing it just to get stronger and you're trying to get a training effect out of it, like you said, I agree. Don't do anything that's completely unsafe. It's going to risk injury. Not all your reps are going to be 100% perfect. Should you strive for that? Yeah, but if you're... So to me, like I differentiate that into if you're doing it for strength work, you probably need to be a little bit more particular about technique. If yeah. you're doing it for conditioning, by definition, the weight is a little bit lighter. You can probably be a little bit more, quote unquote, loose with your technique, which mm -hmm. some people in the kettlebell community lose their shit over that. But just watch, go to the RKC, watch the snatch test. Like most of those are, I would say, not beautiful at all. But they met the goal, right? If you're, exactly. I think it's 24 kg for a guy in five minutes or whatever it was. So again, I think a lot of times we, especially online, we forget what the context is. I remember yeah. doing the RKC, the, the old the tactical strength challenge. I don't know if they yep. still have that around. But the one year I thought I would do the elite, which is the max deadlift, pull up with 10 or 20 pounds, and then a kettlebell snatches with the 32. And <laughs> that was for five minutes. And that was... I think that's probably one of the most miserable things I've ever done in my oh, life. Oh God, it's brutal. I yeah. got 63 reps or something like that. It was in the sixties and 
I was like destroyed for an hour after I was just, and I know they were absolutely not pretty at all, but yeah. was a training thing, probably pretty damn effective. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, the TSC. Oh gosh. It is. It's interesting. It's still around the Tashners. Oh, okay. The Tashners have really taken it over because Derek, I think, won it a million and a half times oh, okay. <laughs> over because Derek Toshner is unbelievable coach, unbelievable guy. And he's just a freak of strength because I think he did like what, 138 snatches with the 32 in five minutes. With the 32? Like with the 32. Oh, yeah. He, oh, my God. Well, what he, the hell? He took, he took first place in the elite like so many times and he was first in every category like deadlift, pull-ups and snatch test. And if anybody hasn't done a TSC before, you do a max deadlift pull, then you do a pull-up max. I think there's a flex arm hang for the women's division. And then you do a snatch test afterwards. It's just as many as you can do in five minutes. But what you don't realize about that snatch test is you've just done a max pull of your right. posterior chain and you've just done a serious pull-up rep test. So your grip is much different. So it's a different snatch test than you had. Yeah, 10, 15 minutes to recover beforehand. But uh, yeah, it's that 32K bell. My my old partner, Chris Abbott did that. And I think he, I've, I remember watching his face just during that. And it's just, it's, it's just like, these. this cannot go faster, any faster from here. But it's funny with technique though, because I've talked with some GS people on my podcast. Like I've talked with Dennis Vasilov and hmm. Brittany Shravendijk and Lorna. And if you're going to do one hand switch, 10 minute test and stuff like that, like you got to have your technique dialed in because oh, yeah. you can do a minute or two of work. But if you're doing like that, every little off, off technique issue in there is going to pop up over that time. And I just saw Dennis do a video the other day with the 30 K and he did 220 reps, I think in 10 minutes with one oh, hand geez. switch. So he did a like hundred in a row with one hand and it's just like clockwork like this. I'm like, this is the most insane thing I've ever seen from here, just as far as the strength, but then the technique that comes in too. Yeah. And if you want to go that route from there, but just like you said, like I've witnessed and done a million five minute kettlebell snatch tests before everybody's technique looks a little bit different, but as long as you're locking it out at the top, it's like, it counts as a rep. And they tell you that when you assist instructors with this, it's like, we're not looking for perfect aesthetics. You're looking for standards. And I think when you go back and you train your own clients who maybe don't want to be SFG instructors or RKC instructors, it's like, they want to get lean. They want to get strong and they want to feel competent in doing something. That's what I think is so cool about kettlebell training is it dims down a lot of the unnecessary BS that you hear from the fitness industry about arguing about all these little things and puts it into, oh yeah, focus on this one modality. If you do that, you're going to get really strong. You can get really lean. You can get, you can change your body composition. Like you can get everything for your joint mobility in here. Like it is a, a tool that kind of can hit everything in there. Now, granted there's barbell work, one rep max. Yeah. Getting up to that. Absolutely. If there's other tools that are great, but as far as just having one tool if you're training from home and you want to get everything in there i don't think there's a tool that's better than the kettlebell yeah one of the last questions we wrap up what would your top three kind of kettlebell exercise recommendation so somebody says yeah i'm not training for a sport per se i just want to add a little bit more muscle maybe get a little bit stronger yeah, maybe lose some weight what would be your top three kettlebell exercises that you'd recommend to them 
So I would say clean and press. I'll put those two together in mm-hmm. there. Snatch and then actually kettlebell front squat. Yes. I think those things say like a lot of times, like the foundational stuff, people's like the kettlebell swing, the Turkish getup. I think those are great too. But if you're looking for really great strength, like I don't think there's a better exercise than learning how to military press a kettlebell. Just from the shoulder architecture of it, you need that thoracic extension. You need to have good mobility in order to do that. And then as far as a conditioning tool in there, if you learn how to snatch a kettlebell properly, like I think there's no better tool from there. And then I'll add in the squat just because a kettlebell front squat is like, you can teach that to anybody. Like you can do a goblet squat, you can do a front squat. And just as far as lighting up your core. If you want to, if you want to really get a core workout in, add a set of front squats after you do like a bunch of other stuff with the kettlebell. I think that's where I think Pavel's return of the kettlebell program is that where once you do like your ladders of five presses at the top of the fifth rung, you do a set of five front squats Mm. with the bells that you're using. And like, you can be a very strong barbell squatter, and you get a pair of 32s in there, like that's going to give you a workout for your legs, for your core, for your athletic just conditioning. I think if you're going to do three things right there, I think you can't beat those. Yeah, that reminds me, I need to put kettlebell double front squats, probably test them out again, because it's one of those things that it's so effective. You sometimes just don't want to do them again because they're not fun at all. Yeah. But I yeah. would argue that even a moderately strong athlete, if you take even just 24 in each hand and do 10 to 15 reps of a kettlebell front squat, that's pretty taxing. It, and yeah. it's taxing in a different way, I think, because of the shape of the bells and the fact that it's the load is so much more out in front of you that, like you said, the core stabilization and the other things that you might need to work on because it's really trying to, it's almost like a zercher squat. It's really trying to rip you more forward than what 100. you realize which I think underappreciated. Yeah. If I'm like right now, like I'm doing a lot of like the iron cardio protocol. I don't know if you've Mm. heard that, but Brett came out with a book called iron cardio, which is like the single rep complexes. So Mm. essentially the original kind of strength aerobics workout was clean press, then squat. So you're doing a single rep. So you do one clean, one press, one squat, drop it down next 30 seconds, do the other side, next 30 seconds, do the other side. So you're always doing one solid rep. But then once you do that, then you add a snatch to it. So you go clean, press, squat, snatch, then alternate. So if you do that for 15 to 20 minutes or 30 minutes or so, like all of a sudden you're getting 30 to 40 sets of work in all single, all single reps. So you're dialing in technique. You're really challenging just your overall strength, your recovery as well. You do a double kettlebell day in there where you go clean, press, squat, like all of a sudden you're adding a lot of volume in a short period of time of doing it when, and you're not compromising technique at all. Anybody's interested in getting like really dialing in technique. Like that has been my go-to I've been doing that for a while and hypertrophy wise conditioning wise, like these things, as far as doing a really simple program and also your intuition. Oh, I feel like I'm feeling pretty good today. Okay. I'm going to add a second rep to this, to this right here. Okay. I'm feeling a little bit off. I'm feeling a little tired. All right. Clean press squat. I'll take out the snatch. You can still do a lot of work. So there's always an avenue 
that you can go. In my, in my business, we call it the highway of strength. There's always mm-hmm. a lane that you can take. Sometimes you need to go cruise control and go in the right lane. Other days you're feeling really good. All right, it's, we're going into the left lane. We're going to push it the intensity a little bit more. So that's been a huge breakthrough, I think, in, in kettlebell strength work. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your information and everything today. I think that's awesome. And if yeah, no doubt, maybe people have some dusty kettlebells, they'll brush them off and use them again. Or if they're looking for some to travel or other something that's useful, that's different. Because I know people like novelty, so I'd rather push them towards novelty that's going to be useful instead of half the harebrained stuff they see on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. No, if anybody's interested too, if you go on my site, mystrengthconnection.com, there's an ebook I put together called the One Day Strength Challenge, which is actually how to incorporate these kettlebell protocols in the program you're already doing. So if you already nice. are doing a program, you add this in one day a week and it fills in the gaps of what you might not be getting from there. So you can do it as like a standalone program or add it in with all you're doing. So if you want to work on your technique, if you want to dust them off, then jump on there. You can download that. And I show you exactly how to add this into already what you're doing. Cool. And what's the URL for that again? Mystrengthconnection.com. Great. And if people want to follow you and find out more from you, where would they do that? Same URL or different one? You can go to, yeah, you could check out the site. You can go to Facebook. I'm pretty active on there. Just Michael Kurkowski. Check in there. I have a Facebook group called The Strength Connection, which is the name of my podcast that I have, which you've been a guest on, which was awesome yeah. having you on. And there I dive deeper into a lot of the insights from the podcast, things that I'm working on, clients that I'm working with and stuff like that. And then Instagram is Mike underscore strength connection. You can find me there. So yeah, all the socials, all that good stuff. Cool. Thank you so much for all your time today and sharing all the kettlebell wisdom. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Appreciate it, Doc. Thank you. Thank you. Got it. Cool. Thank you so much for all the time. I got to take off here, but yeah, I'll let you know once it's out and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it, man. Have a good one. Cool. See you, buddy. Bye. See ya. Big thanks to Mike Kurkowski for coming on the podcast, talking all about kettlebells. Make sure to check out his podcast, The Strength Connection on Apple Podcasts and we're all other great podcasts are at. I did a podcast on his show, so we'll link to that in some of the comments or some of the notes below here, so you can check that out. Yeah, I would highly recommend you using some kettlebells if you can. Again, it's going to be much better than nothing. Of course, if you have access to a full gym, our kettlebell is going to be superior. Yeah, maybe not. Depends on your goal and what you're trying to do, but I think for a lot of people, as we talked about in the interview, they serve as a really good tool don't take up a lot of space, and there's a wide variety of stuff you can do with even just a couple kettlebells. So big thanks to him. Make sure to check out his products and all of his information there and his podcast. Coming up very soon is a very cool conference, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast here in Vegas, the Real Coaches Summit 2023. Go to summit 2023com for all of the details, I will be giving a talk there entitled Fat for Fuel to Get Leaner and Carbs for Performance, How to Master Metabolism with Metabolic Flexibility. So you want to check that one out. I hope to see you there. It's going to be a great conference. I'm super excited about it. 
good buddies are going to be there. Dr. John Mike, Andrew Coates, Sam Miller, Stan Efferdine, Alex Viata, Dr. Jade Tata, and many others. So check it out. Hope to see you there. If you do show up, please come up and say hi. I would love to talk to you. Also, as a heads up, the FizzFlex certification is coming up. It will open again in mid-March 2023. So if you're looking to enhance your recovery, become more resilient, anti-fragile, and just generally a lot harder to kill, once you've mastered basic nutrition and exercise, what would you do next? That is the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. We cover everything from temperature changes, such as sauna, the effect of cold water immersion, changes in pH, which covers everything from low-intensity aerobic stuff, breathing techniques, to a really brutal high-intensity interval training you can do. Expanded metabolic flexibility, looking more at carbohydrates, carbohydrate loading. And then also on the other end, if you wanted to do an extreme ketogenic type approach, uh, there actually is a time and a place to do that for a specific context. And last one is regulation of oxygen and CO2. This is everything from different types of exercise, nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, and how do you set them up? So check out physiologicflexibility.com for all the details. You can get onto the waitlist there. I'll let you know as soon as it opens. We've got some exclusive bonus items for you also. So thank you so much as always for listening to the podcast. Thanks to Mike for being on here chatting all about kettlebells. If you have time, please leave us a review, even if it's really short or whatever stars you feel are appropriate. Always helps us with the distribution. To date, we haven't done any paid advertisement or anything like that. Not that I'm against it. So far, everything has just been organic, word of mouth. So if you find someone who is interested in this podcast, please send it along, share it online. Thank you so much as always for listening. Greatly appreciate it. Talk to you all next week. Oh, that number scared the pants off me. <laughs> Are you sure you didn't just forget to put them on again?